0: Notre-Dame de Paris, by Victor Hugo, Book 4, Chapter 3, Imanis Pecoris Custos, Imanior Ipse, which, according to the translator's note, means, Tending the huge herd even huger himself. Now, in 1482, Quasimodo had grown up. He had been made, some years previous, bell-ringer of Notre-Dame, thanks to his adopted father, Claude Frollo who had become Archdeacon of Josace, thanks to his liege, Lord Sir Louis de Beaumont, who had become Bishop of Paris in 1472, on the death of Guillaume Chartier, thanks to his patron Olivier Ledem, barber to Louis XI, king by the grace of God. Quasimodo, therefore, was Ringer of Notre-Dame. In time, a peculiar bond of intimacy grew up between the Ringer and the Church. Cut off forever from the world by the double fatality of his unknown birth and his deformity, confined from infancy in this doubly insuperable circle, the poor wretch became used to seeing nothing of the world outside the religious walls which had received him into their shadow. Notre Dame had been to him by turns, as he grew and developed, egg, nest, home, country, universe." and it is certain that there was a sort of mysterious and pre-existing harmony between this creature and the structure. When, still a child, he dragged himself tortuously and jerkingly along beneath its gloomy arches, he seemed, with his human face and animal-like limbs, to be some reptile native to that damp, dark pavement upon which the Roman capitals cast so many grotesque shadows. Later on, The first time that he mechanically grasped the bell rope in the tower, and clung to it, and set the bells ringing, he seemed to Claude, his adopted father, like a child whose tongue is loosed, and who begins to talk. It was thus, little by little, growing ever after the pattern of the cathedral, living there, sleeping there, seldom leaving its precincts, forever subject to its mysterious influence he came to look like it, to be embedded in it, to form, as it were, an integral part of it. His sharp angles, if we may be pardoned the simile, fitted into the re-entering angles of the building, and he seemed not only to inhabit it, but to be its natural tenant. He might almost be said to have assumed its form, as the snail assumes the form of its shell. It was his dwelling, his hole, his wrapper. There was so deep an instinct of sympathy between him and the old church, there were so many magnetic affinities between them, that he in some sort clung to it, as the tortoise to its shell. The rugged cathedral was his shell. It is useless to warn the reader not to take literally the figures of speech which we are forced to use here to express this singular, symmetrical, direct, Almost consubstantial union of a man and an edifice. It is also useless to speak of the degree of familiarity with the whole cathedral which he had acquired during so long and intimate a cohabitation. This dwelling was his own. It contained no deeps which Quasimodo had not penetrated, no heights which he had not scaled. He often climbed the façade several stories high, by the mere aid of projecting bits of sculpture. The towers upon the outer face, of which he was frequently seen crawling like a lizard gliding over a perpendicular wall—those twin giants, so lofty, so threatening, so terrible—had no vertigos, no terrors, no giddiness for him. They were so docile to his hand, so easily climbed— That he might be said to have tamed them. By dint of jumping, clamoring, sporting amid the abysses of the huge cathedral, he had become, as it were, a monkey and a goat, like the Calabrian child who swims before he walks and plays with the sea while but an infant. Moreover, not only his body but also his spirit seemed to be molded by the cathedral. What was the state of that soul? What bent had it assumed? What form had it taken under its knotty covering in this wild life? It would be hard to tell. Quasimodo was born blind of one eye, hump-backed, lame. It was only by great patience and great painstaking that Claude Frollo had succeeded in teaching him to speak. But a fatality followed the poor foundling. Bell ringer of Notre Dame at the age of fourteen— a new infirmity soon put the finishing touch to his misfortunes. The bells had broken the drum of his ears. He became deaf. The only avenue which nature had left him open to the world was suddenly closed forever. In closing, it shut off the only ray of joy and light which still reached Quasimodo's soul. That soul relapsed into utter darkness the miserable lad's melancholy became as complete and as hopeless as his deformity. Add to this that his deafness made him in some sort dumb, for that he might not be an object of laughter to others, from the moment that he realized his deafness, he firmly resolved to observe a silence which he scarcely ever broke, save when alone." Of his own free will, he bound that tongue which Claude Frollo had worked so hard to set free. Hence it resulted that, when necessity constrained him to speak, his tongue was stiff and awkward, like a door whose hinges have rusted. If now we strive to penetrate to Quasimodo's soul through this hard, thick bark, could we sound the depths of that misshapen organism— could we hold a torch behind those non-transparent organs, explore the dark interior of that opaque being, illuminate its obscure corners, its absurd blind alleys, and cast a strong light suddenly upon the psyche imprisoned at the bottom of this well? We should doubtless find the poor thing in some constrained attitude, stunted and rickety, like those prisoners under the leads of Venice, who grew old bent double in a stone coffer, too short and too low for them either to lie down or to stand up. The spirit certainly wastes away in a misshapen body. Quasimodo barely felt within him the blind stirring of a soul made in his own image. His impressions of objects underwent a considerable refraction before they reached his mind. His brain was a peculiar medium, the ideas which traversed it came forth greatly distorted. The reflection resulting from that refraction was necessarily divergent, and deviated from the right path. Hence endless optical illusions, endless aberrations of opinion, endless digressions into which his thoughts, sometimes foolish and sometimes idiotic, would wander. THE FIRST EFFECT OF THIS UNFORTUNATE CONDITION OF THINGS WAS TO DISTURB HIS VIEWS OF ALL OUTWARD OBJECTS. HE HAD SCARCELY ANY DIRECT PERCEPTION OF THEM. THE EXTERNAL WORLD SEEMED MUCH FARTHER AWAY FROM HIM THAN IT DOES FROM US. THE SECOND EFFECT OF HIS misfortune WAS TO MAKE HIM MISCHIEVOUS. HE WAS MISCHIEVOUS BECAUSE HE WAS AN UNTRAINED SAVAGE. HE WAS A SAVAGE BECAUSE HE WAS UGLY there was a logic in his nature, as in ours. His strength, wonderfully developed as it was, was the cause of still greater mischief. Malus puer robustus, says Hobbes. The wicked boy is strong. But we must do him the justice to say that this mischievous spirit was not innate. From his first intercourse with men he had felt, had seen himself, despised, scorned, repulsed. To him, human speech meant nothing but mockery or curses. As he grew up, he encountered nothing but hate. He caught the infection. He acquired the universal malevolence. He adopted the weapon with which he had been wounded. After all, he never turned his face to the world of men save with regret. His cathedral was enough for him." It was peopled with marble figures, kings, saints, and bishops, who at least did not laugh at him, and never looked upon him otherwise than with peace and good will. The other statues, those of monsters and demons, did not hate Quasimodo. He looked too much like them for that. They rather mocked at other men. The saints were his friends, and blessed him. The monsters were his friends, and protected him thus he had long conversations with them. He would sometimes pass whole hours squatting before one of these statues, in solitary chat with it. If anyone came by, he would fly like a lover surprised in his serenade. And the cathedral was not only company for him, it was the universe. Nay, more. It was nature itself." He never dreamed that there were other hedgerows than the stained-glass windows in perpetual bloom, other shade than that of the stone foliage always budding, loaded with birds in the thickets of Saxon capitals, other mountains than the colossal towers of the church, or other ocean than Paris roaring at their feet. But that which he loved more than all else in the motherly building, that which awakened his soul and bade it spread its poor, stunted wings, folded in such misery where it dwelt in darkness. That which sometimes actually made him happy was the bells. He loved them. He caressed them. He talked to them. He understood them. From the chime in the steeple, over the transept, to the big bell above the door, he had a tender feeling for them all. The belfry of the transept and the two towers were to him like three great cages, in which the birds, trained by him, sang for him alone. And yet it was these very bells which made him deaf. But mothers often love that child best which has cost them most pain. To be sure, their voice was the only one which he could now hear. For this reason the big bell was his best beloved. She was his favorite of that family of noisy damsels who fluttered about his head on holidays. This big bell had been christened Marie. She hung alone in the south tower with her sister Jacqueline, a bell of less size enclosed in a smaller cage close beside her own. This Jacqueline was named for the wife of Jeanne Montague, who gave the bell to the church which did not prevent him from figuring at Montfaucon without a head. In the second tower there were six other bells, and lastly the six smallest dwelt in the belfry over the transept with the wooden bell, which was only rung from the afternoon of Maundy Thursday till the morning of Holy Saturday or Easter Eve. Thus Quasimodo had fifteen bells in his harem, but Big Marie was his favorite. It is impossible to give any idea of his joy on those days when full peals were rung. When the archdeacon dismissed him with the word, Go, he ran up the winding staircase more rapidly than anyone else could have gone down. He reached the aerial chamber of the big bell, breathless. He gazed at it an instant, with love and devotion, then spoke to it gently and patted it, as you would a good horse about to take a long journey he condoled with it on the hard work before it. After these initiatory caresses, he called to his assistance, stationed on a lower story of the tower, to begin. They then hung upon the ropes, the windlass creaked, and the enormous mass of metal moved slowly. Quasimodo, panting with excitement, followed it with his eye. The first stroke of the clapper upon its brazen wall made the beam on which he stood quiver. Quasimodo vibrated with the bell. "'Here we go! There we go!' he shouted, with a mad burst of laughter. But the motion of the great bell grew faster and faster, and as it traversed an ever-increasing space, his eye grew bigger and bigger, more and more glittering and phosphorescent." At last, the full peal began. The whole tower shook. Beams, leads, broadstones, all rumbled together, from the piles of the foundation to the trefoils at the top. Then Quasimodo's rapture knew no bounds. He came and went. He trembled and shook from head to foot with the tower. The bell, let loose and frantic with liberty, Turned its jaws of bronze to either wall of the tower in turn, Jaws from which issued that whirlwind Whose roar men heard for four leagues around. Quasimodo placed himself before those gaping jaws. He rose and fell with the swaying of the bell, Inhaled its tremendous breath, Gazed now at the abyss swarming with people like ants Two hundred feet below him, and now at the huge copper clapper, which from second to second bellowed in his ear. That was the only speech which he could hear, the only sound that broke the universal silence reigning around him. He basked in it as a bird in the sunshine. All at once the frenzy of the bell seized him. His look became strange. He waited for the passing of the bell as a spider lies in wait for a fly and flung himself headlong upon it. Then, suspended above the gulf, launched upon the tremendous vibration of the bell, he grasped the brazen monster by its ears, clasped it with his knees, spurred it with his heels, doubling the fury of the peal with the whole force and weight of his body. As the tower shook, he shouted and gnashed his teeth, his red hair stood erect, his chest labored like a blacksmith's bellows, his eye flashed fire, the monstrous steed neighed and panted under him, and then the big bell of Notre Dame and Quasimodo ceased to exist, they became a dream, a whirlwind, a tempest, vertigo a stride of uproar, a spirit clinging to a winged crupper, a strange centaur, half man, half bell, a sort of horrid astolpho, borne aloft by a prodigious hippogriff of living bronze. The presence of this extraordinary being pervaded the whole cathedral with a peculiar breath of life. It seemed, at least in the opinion of the grossly superstitious mob, as if mysterious emanations issued from him animating every stone in Notre-Dame and making the very entrails of the old church throb and palpitate. His mere presence there was enough to lead the vulgar to fancy that the countless statues in the galleries and over the doors moved and breathed. And in very truth, the cathedral seemed a creature docile and obedient in his hand. It awaited his pleasure to lift up its mighty voice— it was possessed and filled with Quasimodo, as with a familiar spirit. He might be said to make the vast edifice breathe. He was indeed omnipresent in it. He multiplied himself at every point of the structure. Sometimes the terrified spectator saw an odd dwarf on the extreme pinnacle of one of the towers, climbing, creeping, writhing, crawling on all fours, descending headfirst into the abyss, leaping from one projection to another, and diving deep into the maw of some sculptured gorgon. It was Quasimodo, hunting for Daw's nests. Sometimes a visitor stumbled over a sort of living nightmare, crouching and scowling in a dark corner of the church. It was Quasimodo, absorbed in thought." Sometimes an enormous head and a bundle of ill-adjusted limbs might be seen swaying frantically to and fro from a rope's end under a belfry. It was Quasimodo, ringing the Vespers or the Angelus. Often by night a hideous form was seen wandering along the frail, delicately wrought railing, which crowns the towers and runs round the top of the chancel. It was still the Hunchback of Notre-Dame." Then, so the neighbors said, the whole church took on a fantastic, supernatural, horrible air. Eyes and mouths opened wide here and there. The dogs and dragons and griffins of stone, which watched day and night, with outstretched necks and gaping jaws, around the monstrous cathedral, barked loudly. And if it were a Christmas night, while the big bell, which seemed uttering its death-rattle, called the faithful to attend the solemn Midnight Mass, the gloomy façade assumed such an aspect that it seemed as if the great door were devouring the crowd while the rose window looked on. And all this was due to Quasimodo. Egypt would have taken him for the god of the temple. The Middle Ages held him to be its demon. He was its soul. So much so, that to those who know that Quasimodo once existed, Notre Dame is now deserted, inanimate, dead. They feel that something is gone from it. That immense body is empty. It is a skeleton. The spirit has left it. The abode remains, and that is all. It is like a skull. The sockets of the eyes are still there. But sight is gone. CHAPTER Four: THE DOG AND HIS MASTER There was, however, one human being whom Quasimodo accepted from his malice and hatred of mankind in general, and whom he loved as much as, perhaps more than, his cathedral. This was Claude Frollo. This was very natural. Claude Frollo had taken him, adopted him, fed him, brought him up, While still a child, it was between Claude Frollo's legs that he found shelter when dogs and boys barked at him and tormented him. Claude Frollo taught him to speak, to read, and to write. Claude Frollo even made him bell ringer. Now, to give the big bell in marriage to Quasimodo was like giving Juliet to Romeo. Therefore, Quasimodo's gratitude was profound, passionate boundless. And although the face of his adopted father was often clouded and severe, although his speech was usually brief, harsh, and imperative, this gratitude never for an instant failed him. In Quasimodo the archdeacon had the most submissive of slaves, the most docile of servants, the most watchful of guardians. When the poor bell ringer became deaf, the two contrived a language of signs, mysterious and incomprehensible to everyone else. Thus the archdeacon was the only human being with whom Quasimodo kept up any communication. He had relations with but two things in the world, Notre Dame and Claude Frollo. There is nothing to which we can compare the archdeacon's empire over the ringer or the ringer's devotion to the archdeacon. One sign from Claude, and the idea that it would please him would have been enough for Quasimodo to hurl himself from the top of the cathedral towers. It was wonderful to see so much physical strength brought to such rare development in Quasimodo, and blindly placed by him at the disposal of another. This was doubtless partly due to filial love, domestic affection. It was also due to the fascination exercised by one mind upon another. It was a poor, clumsy, awkward nature, with bowed head and suppliant eyes, before a profound and lofty, superior and all-powerful intellect. Lastly, and above all, it was gratitude—gratitude so pushed to its extremist limits that we know of nothing to which it may be compared. This virtue is not one of those which are to be found in the finest examples among men. Let us say, therefore, that Quasimodo loved the archdeacon as no dog, no horse, no elephant ever loved its master. Chapter 5 More About Claude Frollo. In 1482, Quasimodo was about twenty years old, Claude Frollo about thirty six. The one had grown up, the other had grown old. Claude Frollo was no longer the simple scholar of the College of Torquay, the tender protector of a little child, the dreamy young philosopher who knew many things and was ignorant of many more. He was now an austere, grave, morose priest, a keeper of other men's consciences, the archdeacon of Josas second acolyte to the bishop, having charge of the two deaneries of Mollery and Chateaufort, and one hundred and seventy-four of the rural clergy. He was a gloomy and awe-inspiring personage, before whom choir-boys in alban petticoat, the precentors, the monks of St. Augustine, and those clerks who officiated at the early service of Notre-Dame, trembled when he passed slowly by beneath the lofty arches of the choir, majestic, pensive, with folded arms, and head so bent upon his bosom that nothing of his face could be seen but the high, bald forehead. Now, Don Claude Frollo had not given up either science or the education of his younger brother, those two occupations of his life. But time had imparted a slight bitterness to these things once so sweet— the best bacon in the world, says Paul Diacre, grows rancid at last. Little Jean Frollo, surnamed Dumoulin from the place where he was put to nurse, had not grown up in the path in which Claude would fain have led him. The big brother expected him to be a pious, docile, studious, honorable pupil. Now, the little brother, like those young trees which foil the gardener's every effort, and turn obstinately towards the sun and air, the little brother only grew and flourished, only put forth fine, leafy, and luxuriant branches, in the direction of idleness, ignorance, and debauchery. He was a perfect imp, utterly lawless, which made Don Claude frown, but very shrewd and witty, which made the big brother smile." Claude had confided him to that same college of Torquay, where he had passed his own early years in study and meditation, and it cost him many a pang that this sanctuary, once so edified by the name of Frollo, should now be scandalized by it. He sometimes read Jayon very long and very severe lectures on this text, but the latter bore them without wincing. After all, the young scamp had a good heart— as every comedy shows us is always the case. But the lecture over, he resumed his riotous ways with perfect tranquility. Now it was a yellow beak, as newcomers to the university were called, whom he mauled for his entrance fee, a precious tradition which has been carefully handed down to the present day. Now he headed a band of students who had fallen upon some tavern in classic style quasi-classico excitati, then beaten the landlord, with offensive cudgels, and merrily sacked the house, even to staving in the casks of wine in the cellar. And then it was a fine report in Latin, which the sub-monitor of Torquay brought ruefully to Don Claude, with this melancholy marginal note. Rixa, prima causa vinum optimum potatum, which I gather means something like strife caused by excessive drinking. Lastly, it was reported, horrible to relate of a sixteen-year-old lad, that his excesses often took him even to the Rue de Glatigny, famous for its gambling houses. Owing to all this, Claude, saddened and discouraged in his human affections, threw himself with all the greater ardor into the arms of science, that lady who at least does not laugh in your face, and always repays you, albeit in coin that is sometimes rather hollow, for the attentions that you have bestowed on her. He therefore became more and more learned, and at the same time, as a natural consequence, more and more rigid as a priest, more and more melancholy as a man." With each of us, there are certain parallelisms between our intellect, our morals, and our character, which are developed continuously, and only interrupted by great upheavals in our life. Claude Frollo, having traversed in his youth almost the entire circle of human knowledge, positive, external, and legitimate, was forced, unless he stopped, ubi defuit orbis, having defeated the world, to go farther afield and seek other food for the insatiate activity of his mind. The antique symbol of the serpent biting its own tail is especially appropriate to science. It seemed that Claude Frollo had experienced this. Many worthy persons affirmed that having exhausted the foss, the right, of human knowledge, he had ventured to penetrate into the nefas, the wrong, He had, so they said, successively tasted every apple on the tree of knowledge, and whether from hunger or disgust, had ended by biting into the forbidden fruit. He had taken his place by turns, as our readers have seen, at the conferences of the theologians of the Sorbonne, the assemblies of the philosophers at the image of Saint-Hilaire, at the disputes of the Decretus at the image of Saint-Martin, at the meetings of the doctors of the Holy Water Font in Notre-Dame, ad cupam nostri domini. All the permissible and approved meats which those four great kitchens, called the Four Faculties, could prepare and serve up to the understanding, he had devoured, and satiety had ensued before his hunger was appeased. Then he had dug farther, and deeper, beneath all this finite, material, limited science, he had possibly risked his soul, and had seated himself in the cavern at that mysterious table of the alchemists, astrologers, and hermetics, headed by Averroes, Guillaume de Paris, and Nicholas Flamel in the Middle Ages, and prolonged in the East by the light of the seven branched candlestick to Solomon, Pythagoras, and Zoroaster. At least this is what people imagined, whether rightly or wrongly. Certain it is that the archdeacon often visited the cemetery of the Holy Innocents, where, to be sure, his father and mother were buried, with the other victims of the pest in 1466. But he seemed far less interested in the cross over their grave, than in the strange characters carved upon the tomb of Nicholas Flamel and Claude Pernell, which stood close by. Certain it is that he was often seen walking slowly along the Rue des Lombards, and furtively entering a small house at the corner of the Rue des Ecrivains and the Rue Marivaux. This was the house which Nicholas Flamel built, where he died about 1417, and which, having remained empty ever since, was now beginning to fall into decay. So badly had the hermetics and alchemists of every nation injured the walls merely by writing their names upon them. Certain of the neighbors even declared that they had once seen, through a vent-hole, Archdeacon Claude, digging, turning over, and spading the earth in those two cellars whose buttresses were scribbled all over with endless rhymes and hieroglyphics by Nicholas Flamel himself. It was supposed that Flamel had buried the Philosopher's Stone in these cellars. And alchemists, for two centuries back, from Magistri down to Father Pacificus, never ceased delving at the soil, until the house, so severely rummaged and ransacked, ended by crumbling into dust beneath their feet. Certain it is also that the archdeacon was seized with a singular passion for the symbolical doorway of Notre-Dame. That page of Conjury written in stone by Bishop Guillaume de Paris, who was undoubtedly damned for having added so infernal a frontispiece to the holy poem perpetually sung by the rest of the structure. Archdeacon Claude also passed for having fathomed the mystery of the colossal figure of Saint Christopher, and that tall, enigmatical statue then standing at the entrance to the square in front of the Cathedral. Which people called in derision, Monsieur Legree. But what everyone might have observed was the interminable hours which he often passed sitting on the parapet of this same square, gazing at the carvings of the porch, sometimes studying the foolish virgins with their lamps turned upside down, sometimes the wise virgins with their lamps upright, at other times calculating the angle of vision of the daw to the left of the porch and gazing at a mysterious point inside the church where the philosopher's stone must assuredly be hidden, if it be not in the cellar of Nicolas Flamel. It was, let us say in passing, a singular fate for the church of Notre-Dame at this period to be so loved, in different degrees, and with such devotion, by two beings so dissimilar as Claude and Quasimodo. Loved by the one a sort of instinctive and savage half-man, for its beauty, for its stature, for the harmonies that proceeded from its magnificent mass. Loved by the other, a man of scholarly and impassioned fancy, for its significance, for its myth, for its hidden meaning, for the symbolism scattered throughout the sculptures of its front, like the first text under the second in a palimpsest. In short. For the riddle which it forever puts to the intellect. Certain it is, lastly, that the archdeacon had arranged for himself, in that one of the two towers which looks upon the Greve, close beside the belfry, a very secret little cell, where none might enter without his leave, not even the bishop, it was said. This cell, contrived in old times, had been almost at the very summit of the tower. Among the Dawes and Ravens' nests, by Bishop Hugh of Besancon, who practised sorcery there in his time. What this cell contained, no one knew, but from the shore of the terrain there was often seen at night, through a small dormer window at the back of the tower, a strange red, intermittent light, appearing, disappearing, and reappearing at brief and regular intervals, and seeming to follow the blasts of a bellows and to proceed rather from the flame of a fire than from the light of a candle. In the darkness at that height it produced a singular effect, and the gossips would say, There's the archdeacon blowing again. Hell is sparkling up there. After all, there was no great proof of sorcery in all this, but still there was so much smoke that it might well be supposed there was a fire, and the archdeacon had quite a formidable fame and yet we must say that Egyptian arts, necromancy, and magic, even of the whitest and most innocent kind, had no more relentless enemy, no more pitiless accuser, than himself before the officials of Notre Dame. Whether this were genuine horror, or the game played by the robber who shouts, Stop thief! It did not prevent the archdeacon from being considered by the wise heads of the chapter as a soul which had ventured into the outskirts of hell, as one lost in the dark caves of the Kabbalah, groping in the obscurity of the occult sciences. Nor were the people deceived. With everyone who had a grain of sense, Quasimodo passed for the devil, Claude Frollo for the sorcerer it was plain that the bell-ringer was bound to serve the archdeacon for a given time, at the end of which he would carry off his soul by way of payment. The archdeacon was therefore, in spite of the extreme austerity of his life, in very bad odor with pious people, and there was no devout nose so inexperienced as not to smell in him the magician. And if, as he grew old, there were voids in his science— there were others in his heart. At least, so one was led to believe on looking at that face in which his soul never shone forth save through a dark cloud. Whence came that broad, bald brow, that head forever bowed, that breast forever heaved by sighs. What secret thought, made his lips smile so bitterly at the very moment that his frowning brows met like two bowls about to tussle. Why were his few remaining hairs already gray? What was that inward fire, which sometimes broke forth in his eye to such a degree that it looked like a hole pierced in the wall of a furnace?" these signs of intense moral preoccupation had acquired a high pitch of intensity at the very time of this story. More than once, a choir boy had taken to his heels in alarm on finding him alone in the church. So strange and wild was his look. More than once, in the choir, during divine service, his neighbor in the stalls had heard him mingle unintelligible parentheses with the church music. More than once, the laundress of the terrain employed to wash the chapter had remarked, not without terror, marks of nails and clinched fingers in the surplice of the archdeacon of Josas. In other respects, he redoubled his severity and had never been more exemplary. From disposition as well as by profession, he had always held himself aloof from women he seemed now to hate them more than ever. The mere rustle of a silk petticoat made him pull his hood over his eyes. He was so jealous of his austerity and reserve upon this point, that when Madame de Beaujoux, daughter of the king, came in the month of December 1481 to visit the convent of Notre-Dame, he gravely opposed her entrance, reminding the bishop of that statute in the black book, dated on the eve of St. Bartholomew, 1334, which forbids all access to the cloister, to every woman, whatsoever, old or young, mistress or maid, upon which the bishop was constrained to quote to him the ordinance of the legate Odo, which accepts certain great ladies. Aliquo Magnades mulieres, quos sine scandalo vitari non posunt. And the archdeacon still protested, objecting that the legate's decree, which went back to 1207, antedated the black book by 127 years, and was consequently annulled by it, and he refused to appear before the princess. It was moreover remarked that his horror of the gypsies seemed to have increased for some time past." He had solicited from the bishop an edict expressly forbidding the tribe from coming to dance and play the tambourine in the square before the cathedral. And he had also searched the musty official papers to collect all cases of witches and wizards condemned to be burned or hanged for complicity in conjury with goats, swine, or rams. Chapter 6 Unpopularity The archdeacon and the bell-ringer, as we have already observed, were not held in much favor by the great and little folk about the cathedral. When Claude and Quasimodo went forth together, as they frequently did, and were seen in company, the man behind the master, traversing the cool, narrow, shady streets about Notre Dame, more than one malicious speech, more than one satirical exclamation and insulting jest, stung them as they passed—unless Claude Frollo, as seldom happened, walked with head erect, displaying his stern and almost majestic brow to the abashed scoffers. Both were in their district like the poets of whom Renier speaks. All sort of folks will after poets high, as after owls our songbirds shriek and fly, Now a sly brat would risk his bones for the ineffable delight of burying a pin in Quasimodo's hump. And now a lovely young girl, full of fun and bolder than need be, would brush against the priest's black gown, singing in his ear the sarcastic song, Hide, hide, for the devil is caught. Sometimes a squalid group of old women, squatting in a row in the shade upon the steps of some porch, scolded roundly as the archdeacon and the bell-ringer went by, and flung after them with curses this encouraging greeting. Well, one of them has a soul as misshapen as the other one's body. Or else it would be a band of students and beetle-crushers, playing at hopscotch, who jumped up in a body and hailed them in classical fashion with some Latin whoop and hoot. Ea, eia, Claudius cum Claudio, which I take to be a pun on Claudio, which can also mean lame. But usually all insults were unheeded by both priest and ringer. Quasimodo was too deaf and Claude, too great a dreamer, to hear all these gracious speeches.